Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community General Osteopathic, and West Shore Hospitals. More information on our locations is available at pinnaclehealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Ken Burns' epic documentary, The Vietnam War, premieres this Sunday on WITF-TV and PBS. Over the next few days, we'll look at several aspects of the Vietnam era. In the late 1960s and early 70s, the war in Vietnam tore this country apart. There were protests on college campuses and at government buildings everywhere against what many felt was an unjust war. Many of the demonstrations became violent when some anti-war activists saw that street protests or acts of civil disobedience didn't work. They began taking the law into their own hands to make a point and try to stop the war. They were called radicals at the time. These radicals were involved in bombings and other serious crimes. In 1970, an alleged plot to bomb steam tunnels in Washington, D.C. and kidnap presidential advisor and secretary of state Henry Kissinger was uncovered. The trial of the Harrisburg Seven took place at the federal building in Harrisburg in 1972. Our guest today has written a book about the Harrisburg Seven is William O'Rourke, author of The Harrisburg Seven and The New Catholic Left. Mr. O'Rourke, welcome to the program. Yes, happy to be here. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. As part of WITF's ongoing effort to share the history of our region, the Vietnam War WITF Stories provides an in-depth multimedia look at how the Vietnam War impacted the people of south-central Pennsylvania. Visit our website, vietnam.witf.org. All right, so... So I kind of provided a, a thumbnail sketch of the Harrisburg Seven, but if you would, provide a few more details. Who were the Harrisburg Seven, and what were they accused of doing? Well, the Harrisburg Seven were, <coughs> excuse me, actually a transitional group. In your introduction, you highlighted the violence that was uh, starting up, especially in the early 70s, in the anti-war movement. The Harrisburg Seven consisted of... a six uh, Catholics, some priests and nuns, and um, one Muslim Pakistani. Um, the, they had been uh, peaceful demonstrators. Uh, Philip Berrigan was uh, a priest and most famous for being part of the Catonsville Nine, which was um, a mostly peaceable demonstration and very effective. But uh, at the time of uh, the plot. The plot was announced, you have to remember, by J. Edgar Hoover in order to get more money for the FBI. Uh, so the Hoover's other instinct was to uh, get rid of the peaceful reputation of these uh, priests and nuns were being a headache to him. And um, they had a informer in Lewisburg Penitentiary, who, uh, where Philip Berrigan was residing because of the Catonsville Nine, and that informer uh, uh, copied letters that were going in and out from Elizabeth McAllister, a nun at the time, um, uh, detailing uh, conversations that were held about how the uh, peace movement could be advanced. One of, and one of the conversations had to do with kidnapping somebody famous. In this case, kidnapping uh, the particular person mentioned was Henry Kissinger, who was um, a large figure in government at the time. But again, Hoover's intention was to get rid of uh, the peace uh, side of the protesters. It's much easier to uh, uh, criminalize and attack uh, violent protesters. And the by staging this trial um, and uh, playing up the uh, bombing of the heating tunnels uh, business, which uh, never was going to take place, uh, even though they did scout out tunnels, uh, two of the defendants, uh, none of the two priests, 
Philip Berrigan and Joe Winderroth went into the D.C. tunnels. But uh, the Catholic left itself was torn, torn between the more Gandhi side of the um, peace movement uh, and the more violent side at that time represented by uh, the incohate SDS and the weathermen who were starting up. So just to, to clarify, uh, where was the new Catholic West, excuse me, West, left, including uh, Philip Berrigan, were they seriously planning to kidnap uh, Kissinger or seriously thinking about bombing or the, the, these tunnels in Washington? Or was this just something that, you know, was part of the conversation of what could happen? I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, was there actu- an actual conspiracy? Um, yes, there was a tiny bit of conspiracy in the sense that they did go into the tunnels, they meaning Joe Winderoth and Philip Berrigan. But the odd thing about that is um, this, um, the FBI is good at uh, agent provocateurs, and Boyd Douglas, who was the informer who was in prison with Philip Berrigan, um, the Berrigan himself, while he was in prison, became um, more interested in, you know, perhaps advancing uh, the cause through some act of violence. The the difficulty there is that in some ways he was turning into the most ordinary kind of prison because as a lot of studies have shown is if you, you know, throw people into prison for long periods of time, they actually become more criminal or more violent rather than less. And so I think Philip who of that crowd was the only one, well, Dan Berrigan, but he was an unindicted co-conspirator. Uh, of that crowd, Philip was the one who was really spending the most time in prison, and I do think they had an effect on him. But the um, out, it was a hung jury, as you uh, may or may not remember in that trial, and the uh, 10 to 2, and the 10 people really didn't believe that it the, uh, the tunnel business was an overt act uh, high, high, high enough to, um, you know, uh, bring a guilty verdict in any of the conspiracy charges. Just to bring some context into this, uh, the reason that uh, the trial was held in Harrisburg is because Middle District of Pennsylvania, where Lewisburg uh, Federal Penitentiary is located, correct? Right. They also wanted it held in Harrisburg because the uh, in that district because um, the government, the prosecutors assumed. Uh, that the jury, jury pool would be much more conservative uh, than if it was held where the letters were written, um, you know, which was the uh, instigation of the whole plot was the fact that they had these letters that went in and out. Uh, and they could have held the trial in uh, the New York district, but they obviously wanted to pick uh, Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania, in order to... Um, uh, get a more um, agreeable jury pool, which oddly, in the end, they really didn't. The Harrisburg trial was also marked by the first time uh, Jay Shulman was a sociologist who did uh, jury background, and he is actually the man who started the whole enterprise where now it's a uh, a big going business where uh, people who can afford it hire people to do uh, uh, in-depth studies on the potential jury pools in any trial that goes on and is, you know, either notorious or costly. And that was, again, just to kind of cla- to uh, repeat that point, that the, the very first time that that was used. So you mentioned Boyd Douglas, as, and he's kind of a linchpin to the charges coming down. Who was Boyd Douglas? And uh, talk a little bit about him going into Lewisburg, the town itself, and Bucknell University and what he tried to do. Yes, that it's funny because one of the attorneys for the defense was Ramsey Clark, the former attorney general. And Ramsey Clark, when he was attorney general under LBJ, um, instigated this uh, uh, work release program as a way, as a kind of uh, liberal way to reform the prison experience. Meaning, and besides work release, they had also study release. So uh, Boyd, who was a Longtime con man, uh, he was a, in some ways a typical American figure. Insofar, he was a hustler. He was um, um, had a 
kind of a criminal background. Uh, he, he used to steal cars. I mean, he started early. Um, but nonetheless, he got himself into a study release program um, because he had some charm, uh, charm enough to lure Philip Berrigan into trusting him. Um, he um, became a student at uh, Bucknell, and that allowed uh, him to go in and out of the prison, and that also allowed him to receive the letters, copy them, you know, uh, take them, uh, mail Philip Berrigan's letters to Elizabeth, because though he copied those and gave them to the FBI before Elizabeth McAllister got them, because the, you know, he was outside of the confines of the prison and he could put those letters in uh, the mailbox, because otherwise, of course, any letters that would have gone out of the prison would have been looked at before they, you know, had been mailed. You know, I think that, uh, you know, for those who live, of us who lived through it, uh, we still have memories of this, but uh, it has been a long time, uh, well over uh, 40 years, about 45 years. So it's, it's probably wise to remind people what the country was like at that point. How would you describe the mood of uh, the nation at that point in 1970, 1972? Well, it was incendiary insofar as um, the Vietnam War was, as many people have uh, noted, the first war to really be on television every night. Uh, and television had uh, come into the world, uh, into American households in ways that it never had. The Korean War, even though there was very vague similarities, um, was, wasn't reported the way the Vietnam War was reported. And the Viet- because of the draft, uh, the... Um, war affected everybody, meaning um, anyone was, you know, liable for the draft. And so it cut across economic and social lines uh, throughout the United States, affected everyone, because they all, you know, either if you were a young male, you were susceptible, but obviously there were families and everything else. So everybody was involved in the war, unlike today, where the military, which always did want a volunteer army, only 1% of the population is actively engaged, whereas back then the uh, percentage, uh, as I say, was uh, ubiquitous. Everybody uh, was felt by it. And anyway, the war went on, and a lot of people couldn't understand what was going on in Vietnam uh, in terms of why we were there. there are a lot of reasons, and I suppose the Ken Burns documentary is going to try to uh, you know, uh, point them out as he sees them. Go but way not, back into the 1940s, in fact. Yeah, yeah, no, it's um, the, again, the difference with Vietnam was that it was on television, and television was just beginning to exercise the great power that it still has. And nonetheless, um, so dem- demonstrations became um, a new version of, you know, speaking of Ken Burns again, you know, his famous documentary on the Civil War. Uh, It was a civil war in the sense that uh, people began to protest it. Uh, But the earliest protests tended to be peaceful. But by 68, 69, uh, they were not peaceful anymore. And the government, uh, you know, the killing at uh, Kent State, where the National Guard, you know, shot some students, killed uh, one of them. It's, um, it became um, a real appalling thing that Americans would have to take in every night, partly because this was in some ways not brand new, obviously, because of history, but it was brand new for that generation and for the parents and the families who were watching this go on. So the the Harrisburg trial in 72 stateside was the most interesting thing in terms of the anti-war movement that was going on right then. Uh, the um, you know lottery system had been put in at the end, the very end of '69 and '71. So the uh, uh, there was a change in the way people would be drafted, which was very intentional on the part of the government. But nonetheless, uh, things hadn't. They had begun in some ways to s- 
slightly quiet down by the time the trial uh, went on. And all eyes were really focused on Harrisburg. And the 40 or so reporters who were there were in some ways the cream of the crop. I'm not speaking of myself, but my colleagues that were sitting all around me were some of the most famous reporters uh, in American journalism at the time. We're going to take some phone calls, talk a little more more about the Harrisburg 7 and the New Catholic Left in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org spine. We're talking about the Harrisburg Seven and the New Catholic Left. That's the book written by William O'Rourke, our guest during this portion of the program. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call at 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, that is 1-800-729-7532. We have a phone call here from Dave in Lemoyne. Dave, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, Hi. Uh, am I there? Yes. You, yes, you are. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> I had a couple of uh, anecdotes. I was uh, I was there, uh, and and what hasn't been mentioned uh, was that uh, there were there were some uh, very uh, very nice uh, peaceful demonstrations uh, that took place during that. I think it was in took place in Easter week. And uh, the week leading up to Easter, and uh, uh, there were uh, there were some concerts of people like uh, Peter Yarrow performed in the Augsburg Lutheran Church, a wonderful concert, and Joan Baez was there, and and that was the thing, of course, that stood out in my mind because I didn't attend the trials, but uh, but and you're right about you know they chose Harrisburg as a venue because it was conservative, uh, because it, it, the, the local people. Stood along the sides of of the uh, of the road and and jeered the marchers, you know. Uh, and what we I think it started out in uh, in the uh, uh, up at Reservoir Park and they marched across the bridge to uh, to the Capitol. And uh, uh, there was even a bona fide miracle that took took place. Uh, a, a, a guy from from somewhere out in the northwest. Because people came from far away as as, as uh, Washington State, and uh, the guy had a, a German Shepherd dog with him, and the dog jumped up on the on the edge of the bridge for no apparent reason, and jumped off the bridge, landing about sixty feet below on Cameron Street, and and uh, a policeman rode up to the uh, hysterical uh, owner of the dog, with his motorcycle, and and quickly ran down to the street. And they found the dog, and the dog was virtually unharmed. It was it was amazing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I just wanted to, yeah. Dave, thanks for passing that along. And uh, Mr. O'Rourke, that does bring up a point, and you describe this in your book about uh, the demonstrations. And you also had mentioned that Harrisburg became the center of the of attention uh, during that period. Right. Um, it certainly did. Um, he he was speaking the caller um, Easter week. Uh, fell at the same time it was jury deliberations and the jury was out it was the longest they were out for almost a week and that was the longest period any federal jury had ever been out and one can only think it was since it was a hung jury of 10 to 2 for acquittal that the 10 were trying to convince the two to change their votes but nonetheless um, yes during the entire trial there was the um, they wanted to the Harrisburg Defense Committee wanted to uh, uh, play up the peaceful side of things. So indeed, there were concerts, there were practice events almost every night. Um, none at Catholic churches. That was the oddity. The, the Catholic bishops then as now were mainly conservative, and they didn't want to sh- show any overt um, help to the uh, uh, Catholic defendants in this trial. 
But the so Protestant churches opened the doors, and there were many talks, many concerts, many uh, peaceful rallies. But oddly, at the very end, um, the the more active uh, uh, vein of the uh, East Coast conspiracy to save lives, where these people uh, were affiliated with, uh, went to the AMC plant. Um, the where they make bomb casings outside of Harrisburg and vandalized bomb casings. Also during that uh, uh, period, they vandalized them by, you know, they're threaded at the top, these uh, 500-pound bombs. Um, and they, with chisels, they uh, uh, vandalized the threads. That didn't get much publicity because it happened right at the end of the trial. But so there was still this tension that was going on between uh, the peaceful uh, anti-war movement and the not-so-peaceful anti-war movement. Let's go to Tom in Harrisburg. Tom, you're on the air. Thank you very much for the show. I was a student at Bucknell, thanks to my parents' generosity, and I met Roy Douglas in the fall of 1970. And then, lo and behold, we find out later that he is the main witness against the so-called conspiracy. It was a moment that I'll never forget, and it really affected me, but it affected Bucknell faculty and upperclassmen even more so because they had really committed to this idea of giving prisoners an education, and they were burned. They were burned badly. They, in fact, felt as if they were were on trial, and one of the remarkable footnotes to this story is that one of the witnesses the government subpoenaed refused to testify. She was a Bucknell librarian, Zoya Horn. She freely gave of her advice to Mr. Douglas, the, the prisoner witness, and she refused to testify and was spent three weeks in jail, the first time an American librarian was ever jailed for contempt of court. So thank you, Mr. O'Rourke. Thank you for the show. It's a very important story for our country to know about. Thank you very much for your call. And you write about that, don't you, William? Yes, I do. I met Zoya Horn. She's one of the heroes, at least in my eyes, for the same reason the caller pointed out, you know, that she was a librarian going to jail because she wasn't going to reveal, you know, uh, the privacy of the library. Um, yes, it was... Um, um, it was a time to um, uh, see, in you know, some ways, the best and worst of things. The, uh, in some odd way, uh, the point in history we are now, uh, and that'll be the lens that Ken Burns' film is going to be seen through, uh, is in some ways a rebuke, meaning back then in 72, even though I was a cynical young man, I still thought, uh, things were headed in the right direction. And here we found ourselves in 2017 with uh, a baby boomer president who was never in the street protesting. Uh, and it seems to be uh, uh, a rebuke to all of his generation who did, you know, have moral conflicts, uh, who did have pride and love for their country and wanted it to do better and to be better. And now uh, we, the representative of that generation who's sitting in the uh, Oval Office is nothing of the people who uh, gave their heart and souls, uh, you know, to all the, uh, the turmoil that was surrounding them back in 72. Or served in the military. William O'Rourke is author of the Harrisburg Seven and the New Catholic Left. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Well, I'm happy to have done it. Take care, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. The Vietnam War WITF Stories is supported locally by Willow Valley Communities and the Harrisburg Law Office of Saul Ewing, LLP. We are in the midst of uh, WITF's fall fundraising campaign, and I'm joined by WITF's multimedia news director, Tim Lambert. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Scott. Great to be here. 
uh, as a student of history, yes. as you are, yes, so am I. <laughs> uh, this, you know, talking about Vietnam and very much looking forward to uh, Ken Burns' The Vietnam War documentary starting uh, this Sunday. I mean, these these are fascinating stories. And Harrisburg just heard 1972, kind of like the center of the universe when it come to, came to protesting the Vietnam War. Yeah, and it's been it's been great. Uh, it's part of of what we do. We tell stories, and we tell stories and add context to to those stories, historical context in this case. Um, WITF has been doing uh, preview screenings of Ken Burns' The Vietnam War and in various locations and, and uh, just hearing the stories of veterans, the people who lived through that era. I was very, very, very young when the Vietnam War came to an end, but uh, we're producing stories, talking to veterans. Um, I was on an honor bus trip in April uh, and had a chance to talk to veterans at the wall, uh, the wall of names of the Vietnam veterans who lost their lives. And uh, so we're going to have a story about that this week. Uh, uh, one of the one of the gentlemen there talked about how the first person he saw die in Vietnam, he wanted to find his name and how he wanted to reach out to the family, and he a- actually did. So those are the stories that you, you come to expect each and every day from WITF. And the point of this conversation is to ask you to make a contribution and support those efforts, support what it takes to tell those stories to you each and every day. Go to WITF.org or call 1-800-233-9483 to make a contribution of $5 a month, of $10 a month, of $20 a month. And I think, Scott, that there is still uh, a match going on for contributions of $100 or more right now. Those will be matched dollar for dollar. Make that contribution at WITF.org. You know, Tim, you know, and you out there know as well, because whether you consciously think about it, but uh, maybe from time to time you do, but there are certain topics that uh, are favorites amongst uh, WITF uh, listeners, and history is one of them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, many of the things that we deal with today, many of the issues we deal with today are not new. Uh, We've dealt with them before, and events that happened say in Vietnam or during that era 40 some odd years ago still have an impact today and as you mentioned that's what we're all about a context having civil conversation but making the connection between those dots between Vietnam and what's happening today yeah what was interesting is as as we've been having this conversation about Vietnam uh, there was some debate on Twitter uh, not always the greatest place to go for debate but there was a debate about oh the country right now presently is in so much turmoil it's never been anything like this so many challenges and everyone who lived through the Vietnam era saying wait a minute you don't know what turmoil was until you live through what this country went through in Vietnam so it's interesting to have that context to uh, to let you know that uh, this has happened before in this country we've seen much worse than than what's going on right now so uh, that's the context though we try to provide to you each and every day and we hope that uh, that's what you appreciate you, you want to get outside your bubble you want to hear different perspectives you want to hear um, stories that you might not be interested in but all of a sudden you find yourself interested when you hear them. Make that contribution and support WITF. Support, support, support Smart Talk with that $5 a month contribution, $10 a month contribution. Again, a $100 contribution for the year will be matched dollar for dollar at WITF.org or 1-800-233-9483. Tim, thank you very much, and we'll be talking to you again in a few minutes. You got it. We gotta get out of this place. The soundtrack of the Vietnam War is a book that examines the part that music played for those who fought in Vietnam. It may not be what you think. Over the years, music that accompanied any conversation about Vietnam or film or video focused on the anger, the chaos, and protest to the war, not what the fighting men and women listened to or what impact that music had on them. Our guest is Doug Bradley, one of the co-authors of We Gotta Get Out of This Place, the soundtrack of the Vietnam War. Mr. Bradley, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's great to be with you. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. And I just want to circle back uh, for just a moment something I said in my introduction. This is kind of the song that many people think of when they think about Vietnam 45 years later. 
Well, Mr. Bradley, as I mentioned, uh, so often when you hear about uh, music from the Vietnam era, era, it was music like Edwin Starr's War. But especially early on, up until 67, 68, that's not what the soldiers were listening to in Vietnam, was it? No, it's, it wasn't. And, uh, you know, this is part of this mythology that's been created around the war and around the time. Um, I thought you guys alluded to it well when people were saying, you know, we never had a more difficult time. That time was difficult and challenging across a variety of sectors and factors. And I think, you know, we've, we've tried to make it a little easier or, or simpler than it was. It wasn't black and white. It wasn't just hawk and dove. I mean, Edwin Starr's song comes out in 70, um, and it was, it, was, it was one of the few Motown songs that made any kind of statement about the war. Barry Gordy and Motown tried to play it safe. And um, I heard that song when I was in the Army. I heard it in Vietnam, and it was sort of like, okay, you know, nice beat, easy to dance to. I'll give it an 85. You know, but um, <laughs> it, it's not, you know, we're in the war. We understand everything that's at stake and at risk. So we don't need somebody like Edwin Starr sort of shouting at us. Uh, it was more likely that we found over the course of 12 years of conversations with men and women who served in Vietnam that leaving on a jet plane or Detroit City by Bobby Bear, um, sitting in the dock of the bay, Sloop John B. with that great line, I want to go home. Those are the songs that the men and women told us, sort of pulled at their heartstrings, maybe kept them connected to their loved ones at home and helped them to get through the war. So let's talk about that, uh, because you write in the book that that was one of the main factors when uh, the soldiers and the Marines, uh, the sailors who were fighting in Vietnam, one of the main factors to them was not the war, the politics of the war, people dying around them, that kind of thing. It was getting home. They were homesick. They wanted to go home, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think you know, have any soldier who gets uh, who gets deployed overseas, uh, you know, I mean, that connection to to family, to um, where you're safe, where you where you feel um, that you're, you know, you're with the context and the environment you want to be in. Um, it hap- you know, it, it, it happens now too. But I I think then, given the stress, the turmoil, plus we had designated tours you know we didn't go over as units as as has happened in the recent wars we didn't go over with our our neighbors and our friends and our buddies we went pretty much one at a time 13 months for marines 12 months for army um you did your tour you rotated into a unit you rotated out and um frankly in a lot of cases it was it was the music that enabled us to sort of stay close connected you know if you remember that time radio was our internet we all listen to the same music, whether you stayed or served, you know, you protested or you participated. We all had the same soundtrack. But, of course, in Vietnam, that soundtrack and that song can have a totally different meaning depending on where you were and what you were doing. And it's so good to, to hear uh, someone who has made their living in radio that, uh, you know, radio has had such an impact on people before there were other forms of, uh, you know, listening before, you know, the Internet, before uh, CDs and all mm-hmm. that, that uh, radio was that tie to, to going home. From what you describe in the book, it seems to be, and I don't know if I'm putting this uh, accurately or not, but a real change between, like, say 1967 and 68. Let's talk about pre-68. What were uh, the people in Vietnam, what were they listening to then? Well, you know, they were listening to pretty much the same stuff that we were listening to back home. Armed Forces Vietnam Network, AFVN, uh, they did an incredible job of trying to, you know, mirror what we were listening to at home. The Army and the military decided early on that one of the ways to keep the troops' morale up and realize, you know, you're out in the field and you're in those kind of kill or be killed situations. Silence is important. You might have a song running around in your head, but you're not listening to music like guys like me who are in the rear supporting the troops in the field were doing. But, um, you know, for, for the, the troops themselves, they decided they were going to give us as, access to as much music as possible. So Armed Forces, Vietnam Radio, out of Saigon, had transmitters around the country. They used to say from the Delta to the DMZ, 24-7. Um, music. We had live bands, you know, Filipino, um, Korean, Vietnamese bands. They couldn't speak a word English, but they could cover Janis Joplin and James Brown. You know, James Brown went to Vietnam, Johnny Cash went to Vietnam, Nancy Sinatra. Point being, they understood that 
the threat of this generation, you know, the, the generation that was born and weaned on rock and roll, was that music. And they, they gave us the music as in many ways as they could. You know, but early on, when you talk about, we, in our book we talk about JFK, John, John Kennedy's war, LBJ, Lyndon Johnson's war, and then Richard Nixon's war, they really do, things shape and evolve differently, and the music is a great touch point for that. Early on, the early advisors, pre-Golf of Tonkin, early in the war after um, 64, 65, we were going to be liberators, this was going to be quick, we were going to be in and out. You know, um, these are some career soldiers coming out of even World War II, but Korea. They're listening to Tony Bennett. They're listening to Pat Boone. You know, it's a different soundtrack. But then as you get deeper into the war and, you know, things start to change both here and there, you start to hear something different, you know, and, and the Beach Boys who are singing fun, fun, fun are now singing Good Vibrations. James Brown, you know, who was singing I Feel Good is now saying, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. So you started to have that change. And as you, as you said it, I thought very well, 68, everybody thinks of the Tet Offensive. Walter Cronkite, the, the great news anchor, going on TV saying, you know, I thought we were winning this war. Now we're not. You know, President Johnson said, if I've lost Walter Cronkite, I've lost the nation. Um, but also for black troops, what happened at the time? Martin Luther King was assassinated. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. We talked to black guys who said, you know what? If you can't protect my leader at home, why am I over here you know, shooting this guy? I don't even know what this is about. Um, definitely attitude changed, musically changed, the, you know, Everything changed in 68. And the music, I mean, I, I think anyone who listened to the radio at that time, whether we were in Vietnam or stateside, uh, you could see that there was a real difference in the music. It was edgier. It was angrier. There was more uh, focus on protest and on war and what was happening in the country at the time. So after 68, and, and we'll point to the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King for the African-American soldiers, uh, what were some of their favorite songs, some of the favorite music to listen to at that time? Well, it's a, we have a wonderful, wonderful anecdote by a guy in the book who said to us, very frankly, that when he heard, and this was not, the Army was worried about potential mutiny. I mean, they, we, had, we had challenging race relations going on in this country. We still do. But at the time, it was you know, the fight for civil rights and, um, and equal rights was, was intense. And imagine what that's like in the, in the Army, which is more of a microcosm, Overseas in a war zone, everybody's got guns. <laughs> um, this is this is a very volatile situation. We talked to a lot of black soldiers who did not hear this reported in armed forces radio because they wanted to keep it quiet until they could let the commanders know that this was coming down and they were going to have their troops under control. They heard it from Hanoi Hanna, who was the equivalent of Tokyo Rose from World War II. Hanoi Hanna told a lot of our troops that Dr. King had been killed, and one of the guys we talked to said. When I got the news, I wanted to go out and shoot the first white guy I saw. I was so angry. And then he said he went back to his hooch. He had, he had, a, he had a little cassette deck. Um, hooch was, you know, you're living, your your barracks. Um, not very, it was pretty Spartan. But he had electricity, he had a cassette deck. And he listened to Aretha Franklin's Lady Soul album. And the song that spoke to him was Chain of Fools. And he listened to that song. And sure, it's about Aretha talking about a woman who's being scorned and she's going to take care of this guy. She's going to break up with him like she said in respect. But it's also a talk It's about Chain of Fools is about breaking the chains of slavery. But this guy's listened to it there, and he says it's breaking the chain of command. I'm not following these orders anymore because I'm done with this. Mm. Talk more about it in just a moment. Chain, chain, chain. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
at Country Joe and the Fish with one of the anthems uh, near the end of uh, the Vietnam War. Our guest during this portion of the program is Doug Bradley, one of the co-authors of We Gotta Get Out of This Place, the soundtrack of the Vietnam War. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, if you have a question or a comment. You also can send a question or comment to WITF's uh, Smart Talk page, or excuse me, uh, an email to uh, smarttalk at WITF.org, also on WITF's Facebook page. That's what I'm trying to say. And uh, also on Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, 1-800-729-7532. Doug, you were just talking about uh, the black soldiers and uh, how they were impacted and how their, their their attitudes kind of changed after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. What were the white soldiers listening to at that time? We were, we were listening to a little bit of everything. Like I said, um, we had access. Sometimes uh, there's a there's an ongoing um, sort of debate about what was censored when in Vietnam. Um, we interviewed a lot of uh, on-air disc jockeys, uh, guys that... Uh, um, we didn't get to uh, Adrian Cronauer and Pat Sajak, who were DJs in Vietnam, but we talked to a number of others. Um, and, you know, so, again, getting back to um, we all had access to the same music, the music our friends at home were listening to, maybe different meanings in Vietnam. But, you know, uh, oftentimes you would go back to those songs that, that, you know, made you feel like there was somebody there that was waiting for you. The letter by the box tops, because it's about a letter. And that's how we got our news from home. Yeah, mail call was like a, a sacred moment when you were in Vietnam. Um, I mentioned Detroit City by Bobby Bear, a song I didn't even know, but it's got that great line in there, I want to go home. You know, oh, wow, I want to go home. Guys would sing that, you know, when it would go on the jukebox or a, a band would play it at, a, at an enlisted men's club. So that type of music now, is, as you sort of foreshadowed, things were starting to change. And the amazing thing about a song like I Feel Like I'm Fixing to Die Rag um, Country Joe still gets hate mail about that song today. How, how dare you? It's so blasphemous. It's so n- non-patriotic. It's ugly. Um, when, the, the, when we met Joe, when we went out to interview him in San Francisco, the first thing he said to us when he introduced himself was, I'm a veteran first and a hippie second. Well, who knows Joe McDonald was in the military? He was in the Navy pre-Vietnam. But he intended that song in gallows humor. And you can talk to you know, servicemen and women they get gallows humor. Well, you're in the worst situation of your life, and in many cases in Vietnam you were. If you know you need to, laugh. if you don't laugh, you're going to break down, or you're going to cry, you're going to go crazy. And so Joe intended that song as gallows humor. A lot of soldiers got it. We talked to you know guys who were really gung ho, fighting that war, hot and heavy, thought we could win. They used that song to get their troops jacked up. So. It's not always what you think it is when you hear something from that era because it's all about context. And like I said, in Vietnam, things could have totally different meanings. You know, it's it's interesting you bring that up. I knew a Vietnam veteran who, um, you know, I'm a big Beatles fan. And, you know, he wanted nothing to do, just talked about how he despised John Lennon because of uh, John Lennon's anti-war stance. I mean, were there people fighting in Vietnam who saw that as part of the enemy? Uh, but, yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, that answer is going to vary from, from vet to vet, um, more than likely. What I saw, you know, I'm there in 70 and 71. Nixon's announced his secret plan to win the war, which was what he called Vietnamization. Turn the ground war over to the South Vietnamese Army, our ally. Escalate the air war to try to bring the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong to the peace table. And so if we're leaving, you know, the mantra when I was there was nobody wants the last GI killed in Vietnam. So don't make us do anything stupid. Don't, don't make us do anything, you know, terribly dangerous, because we're leaving anyway. So don't get any of us killed. And this is about the point where um, you saw, and this is another thing that, you know, we don't see in the history books. There was a very active GI resistance. There was a movement within the military. There were military, there were GI underground newspapers, even a radio station, (laughs) uh, a show in Vietnam by a guy named Radio First Termer, Dave Rabbit, who was underground radio right under the Army's nose. They couldn't find the guy. Um... And then, of course, you had the Vietnam vets against the war emerging in America. It's not to say, you know, all Vietnam vets were anti-war or peaceniks, but the point being that things had changed, attitudes were changing. If we're leaving, keep me alive, don't get me killed. Gary is in Juniata County. Gary, you're on the air. 
Boy, Scott, this touches so many things. In 1971, when I graduated, I wanted to go so bad. I was, I worked out. I did everything I could. 180 pounds, athletic. I, I did football, baseball, the whole bit. One of our best friends had been killed in uh, 1969, and I just kept, you know, trying and trying. So I go to the recruiter and. 2201 I and he says no you can't go in so I go to Penn State my first year 1971 I was lucky enough to go to main campus and the first time I'm there there's the ROTC guys and they're putting the music as loud as they can country Joe and the fish to these guys doing their doing their ROTC thing and I'm thinking wait a second this isn't right you're not supposed to do this and I completely changed I went 180 degrees and anti-war became what I am today, which I hope is a better person, not because I'm anti-war, but just because it it really changes you. And I think the music, and I just want to add one thing about National Lampoon. We used to send National Lampoon to all the troops that we knew <laughs> because we knew it was anti-war. But thank you very much. Hey, thank you very much for your call, Gary. You got a laugh out of that, huh? Oh, I mean, you know, and the thing is, you know, uh, just because he's he's just being so honest and that notion of the guys in ROTC <laughs> blasting Country Joe and the fish, you know, and the people are thinking like, wait a minute, that, how could that happen? But time and again, we'd have a story. And I think, you know, what the other thing I think was important, Gary was saying, was about the music then at that time, how it could it touch a nerve. And, and, you know, what we found, Scott, is, you know, over the course of these conversations that we've had, both over the 12 years of doing the book and then in the two years since the book's been out and the hundreds of presentations and interviews we've had, is that music becomes a safe place to talk about this. You know, what we don't do the blame thing anymore. We don't scapegoat. It's, it's honest and it's real. And it's like, what's going on by Marvin Gaye touched me. It changed my life. It, it, it helped me to get reconnected as a human being back in America. That's powerful stuff. And every time we do one of these presentations, a Vietnam vet will get up in the audience and tell a story that he's never told before. Now, that's shame on us for not letting our, these men and women get back home. Mm. It took 45, 50 years for some of them, and it took the music. But they got, in, in many ways, we think the best thing we ever did with the book was we helped them get home. You know, one of the things that strikes me the most, uh, and I was too young to go to Vietnam, but uh, since we've had many events with Vietnam veterans and leading up to Ken Burns' The Vietnam War uh, coming up this weekend, it just makes chills go up and down my back when I hear someone say to a Vietnam vet, welcome home. And uh, and that's kind of the greeting that uh, many Vietnam vets like yourself have. And uh, we also have someone here who says, don't forget the folk music, Peter, Paul, Mary's, Where Have All the Flowers Gone, Simon and Garfunkel, Scarborough Fair, and oh, Buffalo yeah. Springfield, for what it's worth. Yeah, Pete Seeger, Universal. So, I mean, you know, it's like, the, the amazing thing is, it was the, uh, you know, of course I'm biased. I'm, you know, I'm 70 years old. I'm of that era. But I think anybody will tell you that was the best music probably that's ever going to come out of America. It was the best of soul, it was the best of rock, and it was the best of country. And they spoke to each other. It, you know, and, I mean, all, you know, now we have you know, all kinds of different narrow casting and, and different niches. Then we all listen to the same music. Some of these musicians, you know, Leon Russell played for Frank Sinatra and Joe Cocker and you know, everybody else. Willie Nelson was in sessions with everybody with cash, but also at Muscle Shoals with Aretha, with the Stones. And, you know, so that made that music even more kind of, connect, you know, that connectivity. But it's so darn good. Mm. I mean, what do you hear now anywhere when I you know. go? I'm you hear with you. CC you hear CCR. <laughs> I know. You, know, you, you hear it. <laughs> Doug Bradley's one of the co-authors of We've Got to Get Out of This Place, the soundtrack of the Vietnam War. Doug, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Love public media. The public, or I should say the Vietnam War, WITF Stories, is supported locally by Willow Valley Communities and the Harrisburg Law Offices of Saul Ewing LLP. Don't miss the full Vietnam War. The Vietnam War broadcast premieres Sunday, September 17th at 8 p.m. on WITF-TV, followed by WITF's local original production, The Vietnam War, WITF Stories. Part 1 will air Sunday, September 17th at 9.30 p.m., and Part 2 airs next evening, the next evening, uh, Monday, September 18th at 9.30 p.m. What are you trying to say, Scott? Well, I don't know, Tim, but... Uh... <laughs> 
Just, you know, a lot of times we have, uh, like, some music that buffers going into uh, mm-hmm. our, our and fall And you picked this one for I, me. I, Thank I, you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Leaving on a jet plane, <laughs> Peter, Paul, and Mary. But uh, I don't know. That was fascinating. Just a fascinating conversation. Yeah, it was great. And those are the conversations you can hear each and every day on Smart Talk. And if that is something you've come to rely on, this is something that you depend on, this is something you look forward to each and every day, Smart Talk from 9 to 10 during the week in the morning. We hope that you'll make that contribution right now and support the programming. Support WITF with a financial contribution. Uh, $100 contribution will be matched dollar for dollar. I think we have about $1,000 left, and that is coincidentally the amount of money we are away from reaching our goal of $1,500 for this hour of Smart Talk. So you can go to WITF.org or call 1-800-233-9483. Make that contribution and support the kind of programming that you count on each and every day. Smart Talk listeners, come through. <laughs> <laughs> Play them some more music. Let's 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 rock it out. <laughs> you know, I, I it brings I had, me back to my commercial music days. I know, I know, I know. But I had uh, we had all kinds of uh, music prepared uh, depending on what uh, what the Doug Bradley had to say. But uh, you know, I, I, I'm so fascinated that we have this vision in our mind of what everyone was listening to at the time and the Vietnam era. Everyone thinks that. It it was, you know, the post-1968, the anger, the right, chaos, right. the anti-war songs when these boots were made for walking <laughs> was one of the most popular songs uh, before 68. Yeah. Yeah. And plus, I think part of that is all the uh, the the. Uh influx of Vietnam movies back in the uh, 80s and 90s where it was always going to be Jefferson Airplane and The Doors and Rolling Stones. Painted Black must have been in every, you know, in Platoon and Hamburger Hill and Full Metal Jacket and and all those movies. And and all the uh, Vietnam vets in those movies, you know, the first few years, the the vets were not portrayed very well. And again, this takes us back to Ken Burns' documentary, The Vietnam uh, War, plus what we are doing here at WITF, The Vietnam War, WITF stories that we hear we hear those signs and if the songs are and those stories so you appreciate that give us a call 1-800-233-9483 tim thank you very much for being with us today smart talk is produced by witf as part of our mission to deliver relevant high quality programming support for this program comes from capital blue cross which shares witf's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve capital blue cross live fearless Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for 16 clinical trials. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart.